Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm the host of the podcast, Dr. Christina Gessler. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Kobina about her book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Why the Protesters in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter and How They Changed America. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here and we can talk about this really timely and important book. I wonder if we could begin today by having you tell us a bit about yourself, please. Sure. Um, I ultimately, I went to um, Indiana University on a track and field scholarship. I ran a track since from the time I was like eight years old. And um, I was, I guess, good enough to get a track and field scholarship at Indiana University, where I um, double majored in uh, criminal justice and sociology. And um, uh, while I was an undergraduate student, um, I was questioning what I was going to do with my life. And um, I was fortunate to... um, you know, my dad, he he and I were talking about what I can do with both of my degrees, and he uh, encouraged me to use the criminal justice degree. And you're um, just throwing out ideas, you know, do you want to be um, a lawyer, a police officer, FBI agent? And I had said no to all of these things um, because um, either I had... Uh, interned and realized the experience wasn't for me or I just or I just had no passion but when he said what about a professor and I thought about what my current professors were like and what they do and I was like oh I think I can do that and so when I was um, a junior in college I ended up uh, having my first African-American professor on the first day of class he asked everyone it was a seminar class and he had asked everyone uh, to just introduce themselves and what they want to do. And I was the only one who, in introducing myself, I said I wanted to be a professor. And he said, you and I, were going to have to talk. And um, he, he took me, he was my mentor. He took me in and he uh, uh, held my hand through the process and encouraged me to apply to the doctoral program. And I ended up applying to several doctoral programs and getting admitted to a few. But I ended up going to the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where I pursued my doctorate in criminology and criminal justice. 
Um, and so uh, much of my area of expertise really centers on issues of um, uh, uh, race, gender, and crime, um, and also the public's response to police use of force. And then I also examine a lot of, um, of the challenges that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals face upon release from prison. I can remember when I was a doctoral student learning about um, uh, the various barriers people in prison face and issues of prison reentry. I just remember being flabbergasted and outraged that um, uh, this, I felt like the system was set up for so many people to fail. And I, wa- I remember just thinking, I want to be able to do something to make change, uh, real change, so that people who, yes, they made a mistake and they have a record, can ultimately um, have an opportunity for a second chance. Um, and so a lot of my passion is really really on advocating for people who are marginalized, people who are often dismissed and silenced and ignored. Um, so that's usually, that's really a, a much of my um, passion in terms of academics. Um, I'll say just personal passions. I mean, personally, I just love traveling. And prior to, you know, us entering into this uh, pandemic, I, I've traveled quite a bit internationally. It's something I love to do. Usually I travel about uh, three times a year and usually a couple of times internationally. Um, I'm also very active. Um, I love running, hiking, biking, uh, kayaking, boxing, kickboxing, all water activities, um, anything active, I pretty much love to do. Um, and I think that pretty much stems from me having been active when I was younger, having ran track, you know, and I still run, um, now maybe not, I was, I was a sprinter, um, in college, but now I run longer distances, but I just love being active. So that's just a little bit about myself. That's a wonderful introduction to who you are. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I know you, you go through this in the book and the title also tells us a bit about what, what sparked the idea for this book, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask that obvious question anyway, which is what inspired you to write this book? You know, when Michael Brown and Freddie Gray died, um, you know, like everyone, I was I was concerned. I was watching on television what was going on. Um, You know, I saw on television and social media the demand from the community for justice to be served, uh, as particularly following uh, Michael Brown's death. And, um, you know, I mentioned in the book that what happened in Ferguson felt pretty personal to me because, you know, I had gone to the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and I had lived only a couple of minutes away um, from the city of Ferguson. Um, And so I cared very much about what was happening in Ferguson, um, given that I had only lived a couple of minutes away uh, from the city, you know, and had called, you know, St. Louis my home for five years while pursuing my doctorate. And so I was fortunate, you know, as I as all this was happening within um, a, a couple of weeks, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Victor Rios, um, he is a sociology uh, professor. He had uh, sent an email to myself and a group of other uh, social justice scholars, critical scholars, um, uh, basically um, asking, does anyone want to go to Ferguson and conduct interviews? You know, and we knew uh, we, we knew history was being made and we wanted to interview and document the experience, the experiences of um people who were protesting after Michael Brown's death. And so uh, when he sent that email, I jumped at the chance, you know, and I 
It took me, uh, it took a couple of weeks to get approval from, from my own academic institution, get IRB approval to do the study. And so I ended up going to Ferguson uh, two to three months after uh, Michael Brown died. And I ended up conducting a total of um, 100 interviews with protesters and residents of the city of Ferguson. My goal was really to talk to as many people as possible. Um, it didn't. It, it, the goal was to talk, to talk to people of all racial, ethnic backgrounds, uh, gender, you know, uh, socioeconomic status. If they were protesting, I wanted to talk to them. But I also wanted the opportunity to talk to people who resided um, in the city of Ferguson, as I was aware that people uh, may choose not to protest, but because they live in the city, they're certainly being impacted. And so my goal was to hear varying perspectives. I wanted to talk to anyone and everyone who would talk to me uh, so that I would glean their experiences with their with the police their, and how these experiences shape their perceptions of the police. I wanted to understand how Ferguson and ultimately I ended up going to Baltimore as well eight months later following uh, uh, Freddie Gray's death. Um, and that wasn't planned. It, it happened and I thought I got to go and I got to interview protesters. I got to interview the residents who uh, residents of the city. And so I ultimately was interested in examining how uh, how and why Ferguson and Baltimore became uh, these publicized sites for protests against racially biased policing and also protests against these broader uh, structural inequalities. And so in my book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, I particularly, um, I was interested in examining how uh, Ferguson and Baltimore residents understand their experiences with the police, how those experiences shape their attitudes towards the police. I also wanted to know what galvanized the Black Lives Matters uh, movement. Um, and also, you know, I wanted to, I was interested in examining how police tactics during the demonstrations, which was very militarized, um, how did that affect or influence um, activists' uh, willingness to engage in future activism efforts? And the sad fact is there's been so many cases in the news that yes. listeners all over the world may be struggling at this moment to remember what the particulars were that led to the riots around Michael Brown's case. Um, could you please tell us that? So, um you know, Michael Brown was walking down the street with his friend, uh, Dorian Johnson, and um, he, um, Darren Wilson, he was a white police officer at the time who, um, who had stopped, uh, who had stopped the both of them. And uh, he said he was responding to a call um, uh, because there was a call that, uh, that, uh, and even a video that showed that Michael Brown had stolen uh, cigarillos from from a convenience store. And so Darren uh, Wilson said he was responding to the call um, and he told um, both of these uh, young men to get off the street um, and uh, ultimately uh, there was. Um, a shuffle, I think, between between the two. And uh, again, the reports from uh, Darren Wilson uh, differs differed from some of the eyewitness testimony. But uh, ultimately, uh, there was Darren Wilson uh, claimed that uh, uh, Michael Brown had attacked him in the vehicle and that he was um, uh, defending himself. He shot at him and then Michael Brown ran away. But then as he was running, he said he turned around and all of a sudden lunged, um, 
lunged at Darren Wilson, in which uh, which uh, Darren Wilson had shot shot at him uh, six times, and he ultimately uh, he ultimately died. And so there was a lot of at the time uh, before the report from the Department of Justice, there was a lot of uh, conflicting testimony. It was not unclear what actually happened, um, and many had believed that uh, Michael Brown had his hands up when he was shot. Um, and so hence the, the, you know, the rallying cry, hands up, don't shoot, which was often stated during, um, uh, during a protest demonstrations. And um, yes. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say and that inspired the title as well. Yes, it did. You know, it was, it was definitely the rallying cry um, throughout protests that took place across the nation. Um and, and I'm well aware too. You know, the title is also can be quite controversial uh, with m- many people. Um, uh, some folks may not agreeing with the title, and others absolutely agreeing. And I, you know, I decided to go with the title because it was a rallying cry of the people of protesters. And in the opening part of the book, you talk about when you're deciding to go and you make a call to your own pastor. And my understanding of part of that call was that you had not participated in a protest before. And you wanted advice on what, what to expect and how to prepare yourself. Can you talk about what it's like to have to make that kind of phone call and have to make those decisions about risking your own safety? You know, um, so yes, you're correct. So I had, you know, once um, I was, I mentioned that I was invited by my colleague Victor Rios to come out and do these interviews. But we also had it. Also, we also had a phone meeting with all of us on the uh, on the team, um, and which also included another sociologist who resided in St. Louis and who was on the ground protesting regularly. And so she had made it clear to us that anything I was able to see on social media too it is quite possible we would be arrested, right? Um, we, we may be arrested if we're there and um, police officers um, uh, tell us to leave and we don't leave. Uh, we were encouraged to wear running shoes in case we had to run from the police. And um, we also were encouraged to put the number the number for jail support um, on our arm in case we're arrested. And the reason why we need to, we would need to put the number on our arm is because if we're arrested, we would have to, we would call that number to seek um so that we'd be released. And so with all of this discussion and this phone call, I, I know I, I knew I wanted to go, but I was thinking, is this worth it? Not to mention, you know, if all you do is watch um, uh, the television and t- to see what was going on at the time, all you saw was um, arson, you know, taking place. And so I was starting to question, is this worth it? Is this safe? And so, you know, I had, um, you know, when I lived in, um, St. Louis for five years, you know, I had my church family and my pastor who I trust uh, dearly. And I know he also was in the trenches speaking out about these issues. So I had called him and asked him about his thoughts about this. Um, and he had also told me that, yes, Jennifer, if you go so I wanted to do the study, but in addition, I wanted to attend. There was a protest that was taking place. You know, uh, the na- it was a national day of protest against police brutality that we were all planning to go to. And I just wanted to get his thoughts. Do you think I should go? You know, is is this going to be safe? And he told me if I go, um, it is likely it's possible that I could be arrested because at the time, I mean, police officers were just arresting a number of protesters. Um 
And he said, if it's, uh, you should definitely wear running shoes. And I'm like, <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm a bit concerned. Is this worth it? Should I come? And he said, Jennifer, you should come and do the study. And also you should go to the protest. Basically he was encouraging me not to operate in fear. And so, which I really appreciate because we know, you know, fear is a choice you make and it can be paralyzing. And had I operated in fear, not only, uh, you know, would I not have gone to that protest uh, on the, you know, for the National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality, but I certainly wouldn't have done the study. I wouldn't have written the book, which um, I certainly think it it was necessary. It needed to be stated. So I'm really glad that I made the decision um, uh, to go. Um, and I, I re- also really wanted to go to the protest because, for instance, I still could have gone uh, and done the study without going to the protest. But I wanted to go because I knew uh, the activists who I would be speaking to, that they would be there. And so when they're when I'm interviewing them and they're explaining and describing to me what it's like, I want to be able to understand it and envision it. And, and so I thought it was necessary for me, for me to go. And I, I am glad I went, but it definitely, you know, it wasn't like I had this opportunity to go and I just jumped at the chance. There was certainly a lot of, um, uh, there was weighing, you know, the pros and the cons to doing all of this. And things they were telling you put so much out of your control. It wasn't that Mm -hmm. you could be peaceful enough or that you, you could stand in exactly the right place to avoid the possibility of arrest. Just the fact that you were there the yes. color of your skin, yes. the power of the police, the decisions that other protesters might make near you that swung the police into a certain kind of action. There was so much that was completely outside your control as a peaceful protester who was going there for this really important purpose. Absolutely. And that was my concern, right? I, I had no intentions of going to the protest and, and doing anything but peacefully protest, peacefully demonstrate, you know, but I was also well aware that uh, the fact, because I am a Black woman, I would be concerned as the quote unquote, like enemy, because I'm there at the protest, of, you know, and uh, so for instance, you know, at the protest, you know, there's a line of uh, police officers in their riot gear, right? Right? So even if I had wanted to go across the street <laughs> and, and, and just kind of like um, uh, be with the, you know, the police and just go the, go across the street to whether it's to engage in conversation, there was, it was very clear. You do not cross the street to go near the police. You will be seen as a threat. It was, it, that, it was unsaid, but it was so clear. And it was clear because the, the message that was sent is that if you are out out here protesting, you are considered as a quote unquote enemy. That was the message that was sent. And so you're absolutely right when you said that there was a lot of things that I felt was out of control, right? If if, if things uh, got chaotic, you know, I could be seen as someone who was causing problems and could potentially be uh, be arrested. And there was also concern that would officers use tear gas? Would they shoot rubber bullets, right? That was something, and they didn't uh, during uh, this protest, but that was something that was so common uh, amongst the protesters I spoke to that many of them had been tear gassed. Many of them had been shot at, at with rubber bullets. Many of them had we're dealing with the trauma of the um, uh, repressive or, or the coercive ways in which um, uh, uh, the police were policing uh, these demonstrations. 
And for listeners and readers alike to understand how that could possibly be, that just that you were there, that the color of your skin, that the gathering of people could um, cause the police to think that there was a threat, even if everyone's intent was peaceful. Um, there's a great deal of information that helps unpack why those beliefs are in place um, in chapter one, which is called Race and Policing. The more things change, the more things remain the same. And in that chapter, you take us through really where, where the police system originated and how it evolved through slave codes, slave patrols, black codes, Jim Crow laws. Yes. And that we've always had this form of racial oppression. It is merely changed forms. Um, can you briefly uh, explain that for us? Sure. You know, the relationship between uh, Black people and law enforcement really has been contentious throughout American history. You know, this dates back 401 years ago when slave traders kidnapped and they enslaved millions of Africans and they shipped them across uh, the Atlantic like cattle, you know, and... Um, you know, this country was founded on a system of slavery and violence was a daily part of being a slave. Uh, black people, they endured horrendous conditions and they were subject to physical, sexual, verbal, emotional and psychological abuse. Um, you know, and slave. So, you know, we all know that this country was founded on a system of slavery. But what most people don't know is that slave patrols were uh, among the first state sponsored police force that actually controlled the slave population. Slave patrols were responsible for catching, beating, and returning escaped slaves. Uh, they were authorized to enter slaves' home with Im impunity to ensure that slaves were not carrying any weapons or conducting meetings or even learning to read or write. And so essentially, slave patrollers were given a free hand to really um, control and dominate the slave population uh, by restricting them to certain places and monitoring their behavior. And uh, uh, this legal behavior sustained slavery, segregation, and discrimination for, you know, for most of this nation's history. And it, it's also set a pattern for police behavior towards uh, Black communities that has persisted to this day. Um, I will say, too, that even when slavery was abolished, there were states that relied on uh, the legal system and the prison system to really create policies in order to maintain racial subordination. For example, black codes were established, which created new offenses for certain behaviors, such as loitering and vagrancy. And anyone found in violation of these um, uh, laws would be punishable by fines, imprisonment, uh, or even uh, forced labor for up to one year. Uh, even though slavery was abolished, these uh, laws were discriminatory in nature because they were applied selectively to blacks in an attempt, again, to restrict their freedom and uh, force them to work based upon cheap labor or debt. And when um, uh, black codes were overturned, Southern states, they pursued racial segregation in an attempt to ensure white supremacy. And, and this led to the proliferation of Jim Crow, which uh, basically are, it refers to various state laws that established different rules for blacks and whites. And so it ultimately regulated the nature of interracial social contact. 
And so throughout all of this, police were responsible for upholding and enforcing racially discriminatory laws. Um, And we continue to see such acts of racial subordination taking place now via mass incarceration, where we know that a disproportionate number of black and brown people are, are incarcerated. And so ultimately from slave patrols and slave codes to black codes and Jim Crow laws, and also now with mass incarceration, racially biased legislation has been enforced for for several centuries. Um, And and I think this is important to bring up because uh, the structural legacy of slavery and Jim Crow really continues to shape uh, black people's position in society and influence how they are treated uh, by individuals and institutions, including uh, the criminal legal system. And we have to we we have to have an understanding of our history. Otherwise, as you know, in my chapter, we're just, as I said in my chapter, I mean, we're just doomed to repeat history. And if we don't understand how the structure was created, it's hard to understand if we can reform the structure itself, or we need to look at brand new ways of doing uh, the the first responder work that our nation needs, Um, which leads to um, a current uh, discussion that's going on called Defund the Police. And I wonder if you could talk about how that movement is really trying to address really what you just laid out uh, as the, the core um, roots of the system and and it's it's as you said 400 years of legacy yes um so yeah you know the term defund the police certainly has is quite controversial you know um and um it, it it, it depends how you define it, right? Because it, this definition can exist on a continuum. So on the one hand, when people say defund the police, um, uh, they may be referring to completely abolishing or dismantling the police department. On the other hand, um, it can mean uh, real, reallocating resources away from the police department to um, uh, human-centered services. Um you know, the reason why there are many who are uh, calling for uh, de- for defunding the police is because, you know, we've tried reform for many years, but things uh, remain the same. You know, we've tried to figure out various ways to train the police, you know, uh, from implicit bias training to diversity training to cultural sensitivity training to de-escalation training, right? These are, it is this type of training that we often go to when, um, Calls for this type of training is what we often go to when we see tragic events taking place, when we see uh, Black individuals dying at the hands of the police. Um, But the issue is still still things remain the same. You know, more than a thousand men, women and children are killed each year by the police and thousands more are uh, brutalized and abused. And so defunding the police um, in terms it's a way to stop pouring resources into a system that does not make uh, all people safe you know we the United States spends a hundred billion dollars each year on policing that's 100 billion and another 80 billion on incarceration uh, and so calls to defund the police you know uh, most people who are calling to defund the police what they are uh, calling for is moving taxpayer dollars away from Uh, from harmful police practices to human-centered services that work to keep 
communities safe and help them thrive. So for instance, this would include investing in education, healthcare, housing, and employed opportunities. Um, and so tactically and strategically, it means, for instance, divesting from having officers in schools and instead investing in teachers and counselors. It would be um, divesting uh, from criminalizing, criminalizing mental health and instead investing in mental health services, investing in restorative services. It would mean divesting from uh, having military weapons that are used against civilians and instead investing in community-led harm uh, harm reduction programs that are led by the community. Um, and so, you know, the real issue is we really need to address the root causes of crime, because when crime occurs, it is really symptomatic of a much larger societal problem. <clears throat> so in areas where there are high rates of crime, unsurprisingly, we also see high rates of unemployment, high rates of underemployment. We see high rates of poverty and we see a great deal of homelessness. We also see poor quality schools and lack of resources. But yet at the same time, Decades of research shows us what works to prevent crime. So, for instance, if we want to reduce juvenile justice involvement in, in the criminal legal system, then we need to support families. Uh, we know that if we want to reduce homelessness, then we need to provide affordable housing. If we want to reduce drug overdose, uh, we need to provide drug treatment. If we want to reduce joblessness, then we need to provide jobs. And if we want to reduce poverty, we need to help people maintain an income. And so it's really about making an effort to ameliorate the conditions that give rise to high levels of crime. And it's actually um, inappropriate to expect the police to address all of these societal problems, because the reality is we look to the police to solve issues of all societal problems from issues of abuse, abandonment, uh, homelessness, domestic disputes, school disruptions, unemployment, and uh, all of societal all of uh, societal ills. And many officers will actually agree that they are not well suited to dealing with issues pertaining to drug overdose or mental health problems. Um, and so, even so, I will say there's actually some commonality. You know, I know the word defund the police is very controversial, but there is actually some commonality amongst those who are called for defunding the police and even where some officers stand in that rather than relying or turning to the police to sort uh, to do all of these problems, we can look to um, other uh, places, other institutions uh, to, to solve some of these issues, right? Because what we've been doing is we've been trying to turn police officers, for instance, into social workers, while at the same time, we have been eliminating the number of social workers over the years. We, we have also been trying to turn police officers into mental health clinicians, while at the same time, we have been failing to fund mental health services. And so we're, we're giving, as a society, as a nation, we've given police a host of responsibilities uh, that they're not uh, really qualified to deal with. Um, and, the, and this can then be reallocated to those who are better equipped to handle such issues. And so calls to defund the police is really about ensuring uh, that uh, individuals, uh, all individuals, especially those who are marginalized, have the opportunity to thrive um, and and we're reallocating resources um, away from the police department, but it's not just reducing uh, the amount of money that goes to police. Those dollars have to then be reallocated into more human-centered services. And one of the really striking um, things you present 
from your research in talking to so many people when you were doing your field research and meeting um, the people who had been out protesting and who agreed to take part in this study was that white respondents and black respondents had completely different experiences with their own police calls, whether it was that they had voluntarily requested police help or they had been part of a routine traffic stop for an expired tag or blowing a stop sign, just basic human things that we all we all do. We're good people and we can all not see that stop sign or we can all forget to put our sticker on our license plate showing that our registration is current um, and that they had really disparate um, responses and that um, even as you questioned a bit more, there were different um, there were different perceptions that that black women were less likely to report aggression that even from the officers that even your own questioning uncovered. Um, so it was really um, it's really eye opening to hear these very different responses given by the people themselves and have you see them you compare them and put them into tables and show us the raw numbers. Um, And I think for listeners and for readers, that really helps them understand when we talk about, even for the police force that we have, when we talk about restructuring or retraining so that we don't get these disparate responses to the exact same traffic call based on if the driver is male or female, black or white. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, in general, um, you know, white people were more likely to have, you know, more positive encounters with the police. And, you know, if they were stopped, it was typically for, uh, you know, traffic related reasons where they will, many of them admitted, yeah, they were speeding or they, they, you know, they did engage in erratic driving. Um, uh, you know, so the way there was legitimate claims or reasons or justifications for the stop, um, Whereas uh, many um, uh, black individuals were more likely to state that they had been um, stopped because of racial profiling um, or they were the recipient of um, aggressive policing or um, the police officers were disrespectful towards them. Uh, You know, black people were more likely to uh, be the recipient of what is called, you know, investigatory policing. That is, uh, they felt as if, so again, so... uh, As I mentioned, common reason for being stopped is, you know, traffic related reasons for either speeding or erratic driving or having like faulty headlights or taillights. But um, investigatory policing or extra legal reasons for being stopped are shaped by factors such as race and ethnicity, gender, you know, or even personal characteristics such as one's clothing um, or hairstyle or even whether or not one has tattoos. And uh, black individuals uh, and in particular black males were more likely to feel like they had been um, uh, racially profiled um, or or stopped because they were viewed with uh, suspicion and they were viewed uh, as threatening, even though they were engaged in lawful activity, yet they would be stopped time and time again. They would be questioned where they were going, you know, where they were coming from, why they were, for instance, traveling to more, um, you know, if they were, particularly if they were traveling to more middle-class affluent or white neighborhoods, they, they were more apt to be stopped. And so there was a great deal of frustration amongst uh, many Blacks 
who were stopped for these reasons. Um, and so, you know, not surprisingly, at times after being stopped so many times, there were um, there were many uh, people who I spoke with who did admit that they they questioned authorities, like, why are you stopping me? You know, what's the reason for the stop? And um, and and so and so uh, sometimes this resulted in. Um, uh, conflict between the officer and, you know, the, uh, the respondent. Um, and uh, particularly, um, uh, there were times when some may defy officers' commands uh, because they are, they want to arrest them, even though they haven't done anything wrong. So there was a lot of frustration with that. And uh, again, not surprisingly, you know, Black individuals were more likely to report all of these negative uh, interactions with the police. And, and it, you know, it's really, you know, it falls into that stereotype where in general, Blacks are viewed as suspicious, as threatening, and as quote-unquote criminal, simply because um, they're Black individuals. And you, you talk about that. Um, you say racial prejudice pervades American society and police are no exception. One of the most prevailing stereotypes is the association of Blackness with criminality or dangerousness. And that's really played out in the stops, because while people are stopped for the same sets of things, it's what happens next that's remarkably different. So when the right white respondent said, you know, officer, can you tell me why you pulled me over? They not only tell them, they let them off with a warning in a number of cases, or yes. the white respondents say, well, the officer was, he was right, you know, he was polite, but I was in the wrong, he was right. For the Black respondents, they were seldom told why they were pulled over or asking questions led to an escalation that they didn't intend. They wanted to know what was going on. And the officers took that as disrespect, questioning authority, and then made the leap to this could be uh, an aggressive response from this driver. Right, right. And so that's the reason why many Blacks in the study, they expressed uh, frustration and anger and even resentment at the indignities that they experienced at the hands of the police, all in the name of public safety, right? All of this is in the name of public safety. And they realize that they are viewed as the threat, uh, the threat to other individuals, other white people. And so um, it was particularly, you know, amongst, you know, when I'm talking to folks, it was incredibly frustrating, again, when they were engaged in lawful uh, behavior, when they were going about their day-to-day tasks and yet all of a sudden stopped and questioned um, because they were viewed as, as a threat. And this was something that, uh, it, it just was not the experience of white individuals. And you talk about in the book that um, when a, when a police force has both black and white officers, that's not enough necessarily to change this dynamic. That when black officers are in the minority of the police force, there are all these um, factors that they're continually weighing in. And so it's not until black officers are more than 40% of the force that they're likely to represent the interests of black civilians, because then they will be less likely to feel con- fear consequences from their department or derision from their peers. Yeah, you know, and it's, and even then, you know, that what you just stated there, you know, I was actually citing another scholar who found that because, um, you know, because I argue in the book that diversifying the police force is not the answer because, you know, amongst the people who I spoke with, um, 
I, I will say 25% of the people I spoke with, they did say they perceived at least that black officers enforced the law more fairly than white officers. And they believe that uh, black officers were more courteous and respectful when they policed. Those comments largely came from people who resided in Ferguson, uh, where at the time of Michael Brown's death, uh, the, the Ferguson Police Department, over 90% of the Ferguson Police Department was white. And so very few actually had had um, encounters with black officers. Um, but what was interesting that is that another 25% of those who I interviewed, they argue that African-American officers operate aggressively uh, when they encounter black civilians. And this was much more common amongst black individuals who resided in Baltimore who actually had, had they had had direct um, encounters with black officers. Um, and then I'll also say too, it's important to to know, remember or to know that nearly half of the police force in, in the Baltimore Police Department uh, at the time of Freddie Gray's death, nearly half the police force was black, um, including the police chief. And even you'll recall uh, three out of the six officers involved in Freddie Gray's death w- was also black. And um, the Department of Justice, they conducted their own independent investigation um, in the police, uh, Baltimore Police Department, and they concluded that the police department in Baltimore engaged in a pattern of unconstitutional racially biased policing. And so, and, and similar results have been found out in other places like in, Sh- in the Chicago Police Department where half of the force is black. Yet um, again, the Department of Justice conducted their own independent investigation and found that the police department engaged in a pattern of racially biased policing. And so that's why I conclude that simply simply diversifying the police force in and of itself is not the answer to reducing police violence. Yet it's the common thing we go to when we see tragic encounters occurring. Just hire, you know, diversify. And I, I'm one who certainly believes in the importance of diversity and, and inclusion and equity. Um, But if we think that simply hiring more Black officers in and of itself will help reduce police violence, um, then we are mistaken. And you you really get into the complexity of both the problem and, and, and how it affects people pervasively in all aspects of their lives. Um, And you say that, you know, we have to address structural problems in poor neighborhoods. There's there's a number of things that need to be looked at. Um, and this study began because you went to this protest and you were part of this project. And one of the things that you wanted to look at was um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And you wanted to look at who protests and why. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, so ultimately what I found is that a large amount of people, they took to the streets because um, they believed that Michael Brown and uh, Freddie Gray were victims of injustice and that these were not isolated incidents, similar to what we see happening now in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, where we're, we're seeing, we've seen that there are millions of people protesting because they know and believe that uh, George Floyd was a victim of injustice. Um, and so for many of the people who I spoke with, either they knew that uh, Michael Brown and Freddie Gray were victims of injustice 
and that these were not isolated incidents because they themselves had either um, been victims of police harassment, surveillance, or violence, or they knew family members or friends or neighbors who were also the recipients of such acts by law enforcement. In addition, uh, many felt an overwhelming obligation to demonstrate. Essentially, they understood that failure to do so would result in more Black people dying at the hands of the police. There was concern that they can be a victim, or their family members, their loved ones, their friends can end up being a victim, or just even if they if it's not their loved one, just they did not want to see another Black individual dying at the hands of the police, which is, um, as a result, approximately two-thirds of the people in my study who I spoke with protested for the first time. And also amongst those activists that I interviewed, um, they they desired to achieve change. They wanted to put an end to police violence. They wanted to put an end to systemic racism. That's what drove so many uh, to take to the streets and protest, even uh, even when uh, faced with coercive uh, police practices during the demonstrations. And when readers read this book, and they they get to the end and they they they're sitting with this topic and the complexity of it what do you hope they will take away you know um a number of things you know there's a number of things um i want them to take away one you know the the subtitle of my book is how you know um, why the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore matter and how they changed America, you know, and the protests in, in both of these cities, you know, has changed America in very real ways. And, and there are, uh, the protest has fundamentally changed America in, 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 in real ways. So for instance, it highlighted, it brought to forefront the issues of race and racism and policing. It also humanized the victims of police violence in ways that we've not seen before. Um, it, it also exposed widespread uh, monetized abuse of poor minorities by entire local criminal justice systems. So one of the things that the protests did, at least in Ferguson, um, the, the volume of protests resulted in the Department of Justice conducting um, their own investigation where they actually uh, found that the police and the courts, they strategically targeted Black people for arrests and fines to add millions of dollars into the city coffers. It was interesting because that was something that so many people kept telling me when I was interviewing them, the number of times they would be stopped and and fined uh, for traffic-related reasons. And, and, as, and as they go from one jurisdiction to another, it was so frustrating. And then the inability to pay results in a warrant um, for their arrest. And um, uh, you know, when the Department of Justice actually showed that uh, they reported the presence of police corruption and even court corruption taking place, you know, um, it, 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 that was something that really confirmed uh, what, what I already was hearing. But even, you know, the protests shed light on racial and class inequities within the criminal legal system. Uh, it changed the way the federal government interacted with local police, um, because under the, at least under the Obama administration, um, Obama had set limits with the number of militarized weapons that would actually be sent to local police departments. Um, it also... It led to increased conversations and debates regarding police violence, similar to what we're seeing now. And it led to increased conversations and debates amongst academics, amongst police unions, politicians, and even the general public. 
And it's also resulted in civilian bystanders using their cell phones to record police interactions with civilians. So in terms of what I want people to take away, you know, what and either in reading the book um, is, you know, there's always there's there's so much discussion about how how we move forward. And, you know, but I, I think, you know, again, I do want to emphasize that we have been repeating history for 401 years because the United States really has not publicly and systematically addressed uh, the history and legacy of slavery. And so if any healing and trust is to transpire, um, uh, we need to do a few things. We first need to uh, recognize the pain and the harm. You know, as a nation, we need to engage in truth telling about the harm that has been caused. That is, there has to be an acknowledgement of the ways in which traditional policing has been harmful to certain segments of the population. Um, and, and it's important to take responsibility for the pain in an unconditional way where there's an acknowledgement without making any excuses. And then it's important to also make uh, reparations for harm. You know, restitution and reparations need to take place to ensure non-reoccurrence uh, of the harm. Um, <clears throat> And so, you know, the book certainly spotlights issues of um, police violence and systemic racism and uh, how that has played out in history and and to get a better understanding of how that plays out um, in this current day and age. But, you know, one of the things I did not mention in the book that I do want to state is that, um, yeah, as I talk about the need to recognize the harm and take responsibility for the harm and then make reparations for the harm, you know, I do want to say that the United States is not the only country that has a violent history. It's not the only country that is unique in its sins. You know, um, you know, if we look in history, we know that apartheid, for instance, took place in South Africa. The genocide took place in Rwanda and the Holocaust. It took place in Germany. But there has been a commitment to truth and reconciliation in South Africa. Um, Rwanda has um, understood the necessity for transitional justice. That is, measures have been taken to redress human rights abuse in order for there to be healing. And then, you know, people who visit Berlin, Germany, they are going to encounter stones and markers of Jewish families who were abducted and taken into concentration camps. And so these countries, they all you know, they offer examples as to how we as a country can heal and move forward. But the healing and moving forward cannot happen until there is a true uh, public and systematic uh, acknowledgement um, of the ways in which, um, you know, policing has been harmful. But not only that, you know, this country has engaged, you know, that, you know, we know that racism is systemic and it's institutional, right? And it's uh, entwined really in the very fabric of this nation. And so that needs to be acknowledged in very real ways if we are actually hoping to move forward. Thank you for, for sharing that um, and those examples from other nations as we look for what we can do. Um, it's important to, to remember that other countries have have addressed atrocities yes. as an ongoing dialogue um, and an ongoing um, path of healing forward. Um, it's not a one and done. We'll build a memorial and everybody will feel better. Um, yeah, it's, it's a long process. Um, in the time that we have left, um, would you like to tell us what you're working on now? 
Sure. There's a couple of projects that I'm working on. Uh, one project that I'm working on with colleagues is um, uh, we're examining how neighborhoods uh, systematically um, impact one's uh, decision-making process regarding the use of violence, particularly among young people. Um, and so, you know, what we're doing is we're, we'll be interviewing um, folks in Lansing, Michigan, uh, who reside in um uh, neighborhoods that are have uh, concentrated disadvantage and violence, and we're interested in um, uh, really trying to understand the factors that may lead some youth to make the decision to engage in violence, um, as well as um, uh, looking at how some youth make the decision to avoid uh, avoid violence. Uh, and so that's just one study that I we just started that I'm a part of that we just started. Um, but there's also another study that I recently started and I'm also really quite excited about is that, um, um, you know, it's, it's the March on Washington project. I, you know, on August 28th, there was the March, um, the March on Washington, uh, and, um, thousands of people went to, um, went to March to fight, uh, and stand up against, uh, racial injustice and, uh, police violence. Um, and I also went and it was an amazing experience. And so, um, I'm interested in talking to protesters to understand how the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others have impacted their decision to participate in the March on Washington and to also understand their experiences with the police and then also their perceptions of how uh, what needs to be done in order to move forward. So, um, uh, so we are currently examining uh, what motivated people to protest and take part in this historic march on Washington, even uh, given the risks of COVID-19, right? Even amid a, a pandemic, right? We see uh, thousands of people were willing to essentially risk their lives, right? By going and taking part in the protest. And so what is it that drove them to take part in the protest, even given that we are amid a pandemic that disproportionately is killing uh, black and brown people? And so um, I'm actually currently interviewing folks. I have a research team where we're interviewing uh, people who went to the March, and we're interviewing the, them virtually, um, either um, uh, virtually or via phone. And certainly, if there's anyone who did happen to go to the march, um, certainly um, I would encourage people to reach out to me um, because we want to get people's perspectives and understand their experiences with at the march, as well as their experiences with the, with the police. And then most, um, we're also uh, paying people for uh, taking part in this interview. Sounds like a really important study, and I look forward to having you come back and tell us about the results. And I also hope this podcast will um, amplify that message so that many more people will be able to get in touch with you and you'll have a wonderful sample for your study. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Jennifer Kobina, and telling us about your book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, why the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore matter, and how they changed America. You've been listening to New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join us again.